You're listening to Rocks Across the Pond, the curling podcast that goes around the globe looking for the best stories in the world's coolest sport. We have curling news and views for everyone, whether you're playing in your Thursday league or following your favorite teams on tour. Now here are your hosts, Ryan McGee and our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Rocks Across the Pond, coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee, and joining me in Southampton, England, is our Professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, how are you doing today? I am okay. Yeah, <laughs> Which is I pretty kinda, good, given the state of the world. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that sentiment, and I can probably say that I'm, I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's fine. Everything is fine. Do you think a historian in the future is going to listen through our podcast episodes from like February of 2020 until whenever the pandemic ends, just to see like how it affected our state of mind? I mean, it's an interesting case study, but I'm sure there are much more important things that they will look at and study to see how, uh, how the pandemic and everything that occurred during the pandemic affected people, uh, affected their state of mind. But yeah, it would be, I have done that. I've gone back and listened to like early ones to hear like what my, what, what my state of being was. And you just see the peaks and valleys throughout each of them. (laughs) I went and listened to the, our women, our women world's uh, championship preview, which like we dropped and, we're talking about Italy, the Italian women. I'm like, oh, I don't know. There's like this quarantine thing they just announced in North Italy. Would they be able to travel? I remember <laughs> just asking oh, that yeah. question. And it seems so quaint, my concerns compared to like what actually ended up unfolding. <sighs> yeah. Uh, yeah, back when back when we were full of hope. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when you when you said, "Oh, Virginia put a shelter in place order for for ninety days," and at the time we were like, "Oh, probably for a month." And it's just you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's the same for everyone, but it's just like, wow, yeah, I don't think anyone could have imagined we'd end up uh, where we've ended up. I'm sure someone could have, and then no one listened to that person. Yeah, there's always the Jeff Goldblum guy, right? nobody listens to until it's too late until the dinosaurs have broken out of the park (laughs) and the dinosaurs definitely broke out of the park um you want to talk about some curling so that we don't have to talk about more depressing things (laughs) sure oh man so uh we're here today and we have a we have an interview with usa curling ceo jeff plush uh which is really cool you know i reached out to jenna martin with usa curling uh, because we are, we're, we were working on, and we kind of teased it a couple weeks ago. We were working on an episode about the new membership model that USA Curling uh, is going to start implementing. And I just said, "Hey, is there anyone associated with USA Curling that could sit down and talk to us about uh, what's what's going to happen?" And turns out, yes, and it was Jeff Plush. So we, <laughs> the new CEO of USA Curling. So we took the opportunity, one, we did talk to him about membership, and that's going to be an entirely separate episode, which is scheduled scheduled to come out um, next week. Uh, we'll see if that actually happens, but it should come out next week, finally, the, the membership episode that we've been that we've been teasing, uh, but we did take the opportunity to talk to him about a bunch of other different things, and uh, that's what this episode is. It's the portion of our interview with Jeff Plush that is kind of a hodgepodge. We we hit on uh, we hit on any number of topics, didn't we, Jonathan? We did, yeah. And so it was just kind of I think we got the notification about twenty four hours, so we we basically kind of brainstormed every possible question we could have because we just had the chance to to talk to you know the leader of a major curling organization. Yeah, and he was really generous with his time, uh, and it's a wide-ranging interview. And we'll uh, let's let's listen to our interview with Jeff Plush, and we'll come back on the other side and kind of discuss uh, the things that he had to say. So let's get to our interview with USA Curling CEO Jeff Plush. 
Well, Jeff, I mean, I do not envy the start that you had to the job because you came in and literally a couple of weeks, weeks later, we had a global pandemic. Um, what is what is your first year, uh, year or so on the job been like? Yeah, it's um, look, it's been great. It's been um, enjoyable. At the end of the day, I'm a people person. So it's been fun to, to meet a lot of people, a lot of new people. Um, new to the sport, new to the to the Olympic movement. Um, even though I've been around it a lot of my life, but but having having never worked directly in charge of a governing body has been exciting. Um, but yeah, challenging without any question. Things that we've never would have foreseen. Um, the challenges for for both both our staff, our athletes at the at the national team level, our clubs, and how um, they first had to deal with with the pandemic immediately during the season in March. Um, and then the planning during the summertime, you know, we did, you know, about 150 what we call Zoom stacking calls with with as many of our clubs who, who frankly wanted to take the, the opportunity to talk. And that was fascinating, uh, enjoyable, learned a lot, met a lot of people, uh, developed a great appreciation for how eclectic uh, the sport of curling is and the, and the personalities in it. So that was, for me, it was like this fantastic um, immersion in the sport. Um, and, and so, which is, you know, without having, you know, events to go to, at least I had that. So that was, um, that was a great fun and informative for me. And, and, uh, but it's been challenging. I mean, like anyone, right. Same for, for you or any other business every day has been, both a challenge and groundhog day at the same time, right? <laughs> it's we're doing the same things every day, trying to kind of, I always say it's, it's like we're swimming against the current, like salmon. Um, it just, you know, we'll get there, but it's harder. I don't know how much you want to get into this, but I do, I am kind of interested in like how the hiring process went, like what attracted, I can't, I mean, I can't imagine that you applied on Indeed, um, but what did, what attracted you to the USA Curling CEO position? And was it something where you contacted them or did they reach out to you? How did that work? And uh, what, what made you want this job? Yeah, no, it all, it went through a search firm um, of which I know the, the people there pretty well. And they, they gave me a ring. Um, you know, I was, I was working for myself at the time and, um, which has its benefits certainly, but one of the real weaknesses of that, I think is if, if you enjoy people and enjoy working with people, um, you're not a part of anything. Right. And so being a chance to, to be a part of and run an organization again was, was really exciting to me. Do it in the Olympic business is fun to, to kind of take sport and athletes and the flag and the rings and, and put that all together um, with a couple hundred clubs and, and communities that care. Those are all things that are really exciting to me. And so that, that was very, it was very quick to get excited about the opportunity. And then it, you know, it kind of runs its course through interviews and boards. And, um, and so I was thrilled to have the opportunity at the end of January to, to get asked to come on board and, and jumped at it. You, you probably had a list of what you thought your top priorities were, and that probably lasted for about two weeks. But what, like, what priorities did you think you had coming into the job? And have those, have those stayed the same or have those just been thrown by the wayside because of how the year 2020 turned out? Yeah, well, look, the priorities probably stayed the same. It's probably just been more illuminated. It's, it's really around developing incremental streams of revenue. Um, just a better revenue base so that we can do more things, right? Whether that's more programs um, to develop coaches or more athletes or develop, you know, all the things we talked about referees, ice techs, create, you know, pathways to helping clubs who want to move either from a two sheeter to a six sheeter or moving from arena to dedicated. It all takes money. Um, and so just creating a more diversified revenue base is, is as important as it was before the pandemic, if not more so now. Um, and I think that still becomes the priority. You know, we, we just need to become a much stronger and, and uh, more stable uh, national governing body long term. Um, and that takes, you know, whether that's sponsorship revenue or foundation revenue or, or larger membership base, um, all those things are, are kind of foundational to where we want to get to. And so like when I was on the board, one of the things that was a big talking point was getting curling on TV. I think the, the thinking was that the more curling you get on TV, um, the more people would watch it, the more members would join, the more funding there'd be for high performance. 
it's obviously a lot better now than it was. I mean, this is like 2010, 10 years ago, where aside from the Olympics, basically curling was never on TV. But what are your goals as CEO to try to expand uh, the profile on kind of, I guess, conventional TV and now uh, now with streaming as well? Well, look, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and my um, very ambitious when it comes to deploying curling content far more broadly and robustly than it's ever been done before. Um, it doesn't need to be linear anymore, um, even though I'm of the age and I guess the you know I still value um, being being on NBC, for instance. Um, but the the younger consumer doesn't care as much about that at all. So, so one of the streaming platforms has a lot of value, and they've done enough deals these days with distribution partners where you can get it on on your your cable system anyway. Um, and so yeah, look, I think you're going to see you know, us continue to push the envelope, whether it's our men's and women's nationals, whether it's our mixed doubles nationals, whether it's partnering um, on maybe some of the world competitions and having them um, reach more eyeballs in the United States. I was both um, excited and frustrated at the same time to be able to watch, you know, the Briar on ESPN um, in the U.S., but not our own. So mm-hmm. I think that that is good news on one hand, right? It's there's, there's, there's a distribution partner who values it and there's people who watch it. Um, we need to get them to understand that, that they need to be supporting us as well. So um, I, I think there's huge opportunities um, as you, the sport. And when you talk to our friends at NBC, there's a reason that they get behind curling night. And there's a reason that, that, curling is on every single day during the Beijing Olympics. Um, there's huge value in it and they see the value in it and, and the customers respond to it. So that's exciting for us. It, because NBC has the Olympic rights, how does that, uh, how does that impact what you can do in terms of like, if you created a new property, being able to shop that around, is it a situation where it has to go to NBC or NBC has first right of refusal since they have the Olympic deal? No, they, they don't. They don't have either um, first right or they don't get. You know, we can do whatever we choose to do or whatever okay. we want to do. Um, I would talk to NBC because they've been great supporters of the Olympic movement and of our sport. So I think I'd always start there because they've earned that right, but it's not a contractual right. Um, and um, but look, and they do a fantastic job. I think anyone who is working within the Olympic movement understands the value of NBC, not just in what they've done as far as putting um, our content on air, mm-hmm. the storytelling that they've done. And it goes back to, you know, Mr. Eversall's passion for the Olympic movement. Um, NBC has been a great champion of the Olympic movement. And I think we should always applaud that. Um, um, but we do need to get our, our sport much more broadly distributed than it's been in the past. Is there a better chance to do that now that Peacock exists? Because, I mean, I, I get it with my internet service provider and I follow a middling English Premier League uh, soccer team, but I can watch all of their games because I have access to Peacock. So now that they kind of need the content, is there is there the possibility to get more curling on, at the very least, on Peacock? Yeah, look, I, I also have Peacock and I also follow what is now a middling Premier League club <laughs> named Arsenal Football Club. So, um, but that's a, that's a whole other show we can talk about too. So, um, but, but yeah, look, I think Peacock gives there's opportunities to talk within the greater NBC family and Peacock is both um, new and emerging, but also already, you know, the numbers are somewhere around 20 million homes, I believe. Um, and that'll only grow partly because they're putting a lot of Premier League content on Peacock. Um, so I think that's both smart on their half and then for us to pay attention to that. But then you look at all the other distribution um, potential platforms, and it, you know, whether it's, whether it's someone like an Amazon or whether it's someone like, um, um, you know, CBS sports all access, you know, there's, there's other streaming opportunities as well. So I think it's, it's really just evaluating the total landscape and who'd be the best partner who wants to help not only um, um, show and distribute the great content, but help grow something, help build something special. Yeah. We, we actually talked to a, we talked to a pro beach volleyball player about curling. And one of the things he said was they had a lot of success uh, with a deal with Amazon moving their, big tournaments to Amazon prime. So it's good to see other, um, 
other sports similar to curling getting creative with their uh, with their distribution deals? Yeah, look, and I've been fortunate, you know, I've got a pretty long career in the business and, and I guess the gray hair to prove that, but <laughs> that I've got relationships at all these um, organizations. And, and um, so it, it'll be, um, it'll be fun for us to, to have a very aggressive and ambitious media strategy, which is certainly something I would have done in March of last year. <laughs> one of the things that got um, a little bit backburnered. So. So one of the things that happened over the, the course of the pandemic is obviously the Black Lives Matter movement. And uh, I, 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 every organization in the world right now is is kind of confronting issues of race and diversity. And USA Curling, to its credit, issued a pretty strong statement in support of Black Lives Matter uh, in June. Um, what we're, we're wondering is what's kind of happened since then. So what kind of specific steps has USA Curling taken since then to try to improve diversity and race relations in curling? Um, we've talked to some curlers in the U.S., and obviously curling's rep is is not exactly as the most diverse sport out there, obviously. Uh, and then there's also, I, I saw a little bit at your town forum or your recent, um, what's it called? I'm drawing a blank. Members Assembly. Yeah, the, sorry, yeah, the recent Members Assembly, right? So you, there was a talk there uh, about a new initiative called the Icebreakers Initiative. So I'm wondering if you could uh, talk a little bit to us about that plan. Yeah, look, I guess, you know, from a from a 30,000 foot point of view, um, you've got total commitment from the board, from the board chair, from myself, organizationally, um, you know, the diversity, equity, inclusion um, needs and platform is foundational to where we're going. Um, and so that, I think, is, is the most, you know, kind of a starting point is making sure that everyone's aligned and wants to push in a direction that's really the right direction to push in. Um, you know, we have our, our committee and subcommittees that, that are meeting, you know, the, the greater committee on a monthly basis, subcommittees almost weekly, it seems like. And so there's lots of, of ongoing dialogue and, and um, efforts to figure out what's the best pathway forward in a lot of different areas. Programmatically, we are, are absolutely excited about icebreakers. That will be the programmatic first step that we'll take. Um, because as you, as you mentioned, look, I don't, there's, it's not to be critical, um, but our sport can be more diverse on the ice than it is today. I, I think first step in any process is acknowledging that. Um, and so how do we do that? And I think at the end of the day, for me, it's getting stones and brooms into people's hands that, that haven't done it before or haven't had access to that. Um, the sport itself will sell itself to people, right? It's a fantastic sport with great people. Um, and um, there's access to, to ice or there's access to even floor curling, whatever it might be that gets people excited about engaging with us. And so that'll be, um, that'll be ongoing. But I think the important thing is for people to realize it's, it's not a flip the switch type of thing, right? It's going to be something we're going to be working on, frankly, forever. Right? I think that's the reality. We've got a lot of work to do for a long period of time, and it'll all be really positive work. So we're excited to get to get going on that. Again, these are some of the things that, that did get derailed um, because facilities were even closed. Some of the facilities we were talking about did, deploying the icebreakers with. So um, we just have to be patient and understand that we're we're fundamentally committed to it. Um, and, and we will be doing it. And the other thing is, I, I don't believe in, in DEI as a PR exercise, right? So it's not like I'm going to be out there every week trying to pat ourselves on the back. We're just going to get to work. How would a club uh, go about, you know, basically signing up to, to, to participate in this? I was able to, to watch the, um, I, was able, I was able to watch the seminar that they did during the during the, the general assembly. And they, they said that obviously it'll be post COVID that this will start get rolled, getting rolled out. But if, uh, you know, if a club wants to get, get going with this initiative and maybe even get USA curling to ship them some, some floor curling sets for, to borrow for a couple of weeks, like who would they need to contact and how do they get kind of, uh, if they're ready to go, how do they get at the, the front of the line to, to start with this initiative? Yeah. Look, I think, I guess the starting point is always, they can, reach out to me and Jenna actually. Um, and, but what we would do is like any other program, we're going to start small. And so um, we've identified about, you know, five or six clubs that make sense out of the gate. Um, but, but again, it's just, you know, just to make sure that we, we do it the right way, have the proper um, equipment, the curriculum, make sure it's, it's both 
um, practical and enjoyable. Um, and so I think those are all the things that we're going to be working on over the next really couple of weeks and months. I think, you know, having people um, like Dean Gemmel and, and Deb Martin kind of taking lead on this um, for us is fantastic. And, and um, you certainly there in the, in the mid Atlantic and in the Northeast. And so I think we've got some, you know, some real opportunities. And I think once we can deploy it more broadly, um, I think many of our clubs will jump at the chance to, to get involved. So I think that'll take a little bit of time to be ready to do that. But I don't think, you know, I think 2021 is absolutely on the table for lots of clubs. Um, in, in that program included, um, are you guys developing kind of an actionable plan that clubs can use to capitalize on the 22 Olympics to generate revenue and membership for their clubs, particularly if they're a small club? I know that in the, in the past, there really hasn't been a ton of guidance from the USCA on how clubs can really capitalize on, on that Olympic bump. So is that something you guys are, are, are going to work on and maybe deploy to the clubs? Yeah, look, we're actively working on that now. Um, and, and as you can imagine, it's, you know, January will be an important period of time for us as we, you know, as we all come out of the, the holiday period of time and we see some light at the end of the tunnel relative to the pandemic. Um, but we also come up on that, that year, you know, kind of, you know, starting point, um, the countdown to Beijing. So clearly, um, we're ongoing active conversations both with our staff and some of our board members who are being very helpful with respect to how we'll roll out over the next 12 months um, pre-Beijing. And then and how do we have programs and, and um, strategies in place to take advantage of Beijing? I think if, if there was anything that we saw out of Pyeongchang is, is we probably weren't um, prepared to take advantage of winning Um and, and so you, a lot of that work has to start now, right? You just don't, you know, you just say, mm-hmm. oh, gosh, we won. Now what do we do? Uh, we, have to be, we have to expect to have success in Beijing, um, at least on the business side. Obviously, it's harder than that on the, on the ice, right? And our athletes are working hard, and they're going to be prepared to put their best foot forward as well. So, uh, but it's all working in a, in a cohesive way with each other. I think that's the most important thing is for, for, for the USCA and member clubs and member curlers and states and regions to all realize we're all absolutely motivated and, and want the same thing. How do we work in concert to, to achieve those things? Uh, do you have an example of what maybe the clubs can expect to, to come from the USCA um, leading up to Beijing? I do not have an example yet because we're very much working on that, but, but um, we can always come back here for breaking news. So, okay. Uh, so. <laughs> As Jen is, as you know, we talked about this on Monday. So yes, we're we're actively working on it. So we'll uh, we we will make a point to come back here and talk further when we're ready to share more information. So, uh, so I guess switching to the high performance side of things. Um, obviously, the pandemic, like, like like everything else, has kind of put that uh, in lockdown too. I guess. But in May, uh, Jessica Schultz was announced as the new head coach for the women's program and for junior curling. On the website, Phil Drobnik still listed as the interim high performance director. Uh, so I guess that kind of the big question, I think, is what are the plans for the high performance program going forward? Are you doing a search for a kind of permanent high performance director and you plan to make any changes to the structure of the program and hire new head coaches? Uh, what, what's the basic plan heading into 2022? Yeah, I, I think... Um Questions I think because I know, <laughs> but we we certainly want to to continue to evolve and and add value, add people where we can that makes sense. At the same time, not upsetting um, in the fourth year of a quad the things that the athletes are used to. So you got to be careful in balancing both trying to be innovative and, and create some change, um, which any new CEO probably wants to do with understanding that, look, there's, there's some methodologies already in place. Um, and so I want to respect that as well. You know, we were very much interviewing in the spring um, for someone to run high performance and, and frankly had a lot of interest and still do. Um, it got to the point where, it just didn't make any sense to deploy those financial resources when we don't have any events and some of the candidates couldn't even get into the country. And so, um, so we'll pick that back up 
um, once we know, have a more clear vision of what the future looks like as far as, far as travel and events and um, quarantines and you know, all the things that make travel uh, challenging right now. Um, but yes, we will absolutely hire someone. Um, it won't be called the high performance director. You probably have seen this, but it's the managing director of sport performance and development. Why is that important? Because it isn't just about the couple of national teams, it's about the entire ecosystem of what happens on the ice at the highest level. So um, I was excited for us to be able to launch our U25 program. Um, I was excited to be able to move our junior program into that pyramid as well. And so we, we had some success changing some of the things. Um, foundationally, we'll hire someone to run it. I'll always be involved, though. Um, in part, I think it's my responsibility, frankly, to make sure that we're doing things in a certain manner in everything that we do. Um, but I also you know, have had success in the past running sport organizations, so I want to continue to, to add value where I can. Um, at the end of the day, I'm a firm believer that, that, that winning is not a strategy, right? <laughs> the, the strategy is doing the right things every day on the ice, off the ice, mental, nutrition, all the things necessary. And winning is a byproduct of doing things the right way. Um, and so that's the kind of organization we have to build. And it also comes from developing competition. And we need a deep pipeline of athletes. Um, when there is 100 people who can be competing for the top 12, 20 spots, um, that's going to that's gonna change things. And, you know, I'm a big believer in, in competition. Um, and I think we've Look, even we've struggled for that. We've struggled to even fill out teams and we've struggled to fill out coaches. And so I think we need to c continue to build a much, much deeper pipeline of athletes, coaches, um, and other support staff. And so it'll um, all while acknowledging and being excited about the fact that we're the So, yeah, I saw that the job description for for that kind of change where it wasn't just high performance it was also rolling in kind of some grassroots into that as well is that kind of the equivalent of when usa soccer kind of turned everything over to jurgen well um i guess that'd be interesting wouldn't it i'd like to think we'd have better results than that um, <laughs> um but i will say too i will say this in my time running a major league soccer club both um, people pre and post Jurgen. Jurgen was the only one that ever reached out to me as the president of an MLS club and asked how he could be supportive of us, how we could work together. So I think Jurgen had a lot of the right ideas. Um, and, and sometimes things fall down uh, on the pitch, not necessarily in the strategy. And so um, I, I actually value what Jurgen brought to U.S. soccer, um, but the results weren't always there. There's no question on that. Um, but, but look, I think it's, it is, yeah, like you just need, you need a holistic approach to developing the sport, developing athletes. Um, and I'm a, I'm a firm believer in the value of coaching. Um, and so I think it's not just developing athletes, it's developing coaches. Um, and, and I think, you know, the, the sport allows itself to be, um, for people to be really excited. It's pretty accessible, right? It's, 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 it's not as expensive as say hockey or something. Right. So I think we can get a lot of people into our kind of sporting ecosystem um, pretty quickly, frankly. And I think that'll only bear fruit. And um, look, I think the opportunity to just have people, you know, for someone in my chair, it's, it's my job to not care who represents us. It's to create the best possible platform for people to have the best level of competition and let the athletes decide who's on the podium at the end of the day. And that's what everyone should want. And I think that's what all fans want also, just to see high-level competition and the cream will rise. Well, since, so I think one of the advantages of you coming from a different sport entirely is you you come at curling with with fresh eyes. So what from a high-performance perspective, what was the biggest surprise about the curling world, about USA curling compared to, to what you found in the soccer world? What's the biggest difference, either good or bad, uh, that kind of caught you off guard early on in your job? I think the the biggest thing is just at least a historic lack of of looking outside of curling for best practices. Just realizing that look, there's a whole sporting universe out there, and you can always look to get better and learn things. And one of my favorite, I guess, statements um, that you see a lot of high performance people using these days is um, is the aggregation of marginal gains, right? You know that that you know, a 1% um, betterment in every single thing you do 
will have value over time. Um, and you see that being used a lot in global football, but it actually came from Dave Brailsford at, at Team Sky in cycling. Um, and just so those ideas that look, there's, there's great anecdotal um, things you can pick up from other sports and just a willingness to say, look, we need to be prepared to look in the mirror first. What can we do different? What can we do better? And we need to be really ambitious. I think, you know, we should be expectant to be on podiums. Now that's not arrogant. Um, and I'm also not naive. That doesn't happen overnight. And I'm not saying that that's going to happen for us overnight, but we darn well better aspire for that. Um, that's the minimum we should be aspiring to. And, and then we, then we compete and, you know, and I think it's, you know, our responsibility to, to challenge the other great curling nations. Um, and I'm excited for that challenge. Okay. So our last question is, uh, and it kind of just concerns the state of play for USA curling right now. So two months back, uh, you announced you're postponing all championships until at least May. Uh, you're, it doesn't. It looks to me like USA Curling is not going to go with a bubble like they've done in Canada. So do you have any updates or timeline for what kind of decisions you're going to make about the major US curling championships in 2021? And do you have a plan to, for how you're going to kind of get curling back on the ice at the national level? Yeah, no, look, we'll definitely, we'll definitely put our national championships on in May and it will, we are planning for a bubble. Make no mistake about that. We're hopeful that that bubble may look a little different in May than it would have to look in January. Um, but we're doing all the preparations, both from a calendar point of view and COVID, COVID testing point of view to prepare for it to be in a bubble. And so that'll be, um, that brings challenges with it, but it also creates the best possible opportunity for these, for these events to happen. And so they will, they will happen in May and, um, and we're committed to that and we're, we're 100% confident that the events will happen. It's really whether or not we could be able to, to have a little bit looser um, bubble environment or, or allow any fans in a building. That'll be the, the more challenging thing as we get closer to May. Jonathan, one of the more interesting things to me was this idea that, and it sounds like it might it might be the reason that he was brought on is one of the things he said was there is a history of not looking outside of curling for ideas. Uh, and that's kind of one of the, the challenges or one of the, one of the differences between curling and anywhere else that he's worked. I thought that was really interesting. And I, I don't know, I got, I kind of thought, man, I kind of feel bad for the guy because I know curlers and I know that curlers feel that, curling is this unique snowflake of a sport that no other sport is like. And this idea that somebody's going to come in and look outside of curling for ideas on how to improve curling is going to rub a lot of people the wrong way. Uh, I mean, I think curling's always had that history, right? Like every time there's been a major change, um, there's been, there's like a lot of brouhaha about it, you know? And I think, I think in some ways it's good. Like I, I actually like the way in which curling is a fairly democratic sport in the sense that a lot of people can put their input in and uh, changes tend to be done collaboratively. And it's still kind of very much a grassroots sport as opposed to a top down sport. So I think like, you know, pushing back's good, but I think it's also good to, to look to other places to, to get fresh ideas. Uh, and so, you know, one of the advantages of bringing someone from outside curling into lead an organization is they can look at, at it with fresh eyes and kind of consult and see how other sports are doing things. Yeah. And it's, I mean, that's been kind of one of the themes of this podcast is us talking about the ways that curling isn't unique. To be honest, it was one of the reasons, it was probably the primary reason that I spent an hour talking with a pro beach volleyball player about curling and published that interview to, to our feed was I wanted to, I wanted to show, Hey, look, other sports go through the exact same things that curling does. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of the innovators kind of recognize that, right? They, they look to other places for ideas, whether it's for membership drives or for, you know, developing new coaching structures. Um, you know, there's no reason why you have to keep doing the same thing over and over again. And his, his background is in soccer, is in, you know, global football, as, as he put it. So, I mean, there's going to be a certain number of people that kind of thumb their nose at, at soccer, but as he said, you know, they, Soccer is one of the better sports as far as figuring out their pipeline and developing athletes because there is just so much money involved in that. 
Um, and that's how shoot. That's how a lot of a lot of clubs make their money off of developing talent and then selling those players to larger clubs. That's kind of it's basically for a lot of clubs like that is their business model. So I, I like that he's I like that his idea is to get as many athletes into the pipeline that then can then feed the high performance program. I like that because before it's just you know it's almost like. Your parents curled, you started curling young, you went through the junior program. If you're good enough of a junior, then you move on to the high performance program. It sounds like he's trying to diversify that model. Yeah, I think, you know, maybe especially the U.S. listeners aren't so familiar with the the world club football model, as he kept kind of calling it, but it's basically a pyramid model. And and what I mean by a pyramid model is... um, like English football is kind of a classic example of that or English soccer um, where, you know, Ryan, if you and I wanted to start a franchise in or a club in soccer, we could just go to the FA, pay the the basic league membership fee and start a club at the lowest possible level and put a team in that league and recruit some players. And we could eventually move that club all the way up to say the champions league playing the, the Bayern Munichs and the Manchester United's and the, the whatever's of the world. And so the, the, that system is based on a couple of principles. One is promotion and relegation. So, so clubs can move up and down the pyramid. And the higher up the pyramid, obviously, the better the football is and the more money and resources there is. But the lower down, it's kind of a bit more um, conventional and grassroots. So I live in Southampton. And around me, there's three clubs, three clubs like all within a very easy walk or drive. So there's Southampton, which plays in the Premier League. There's Eastleigh, which I think is in League Two right now which is kind of like a lower tier, be kind of the equivalent of like single A, single A baseball. And then uh, there's another club called Totten, which is semi-professional. And I can't remember what tier they're in. They're probably the ninth or 10th tier in the pyramid, right? And so they're all part of the process, but basically the, the, the money and the resources for the high performance stuff goes to the teams at the top, but there's still plenty of resources and opportunities for people further down. And, you know, good players from the lower tiers, like you said, get sold bought and sold the higher up teams is a chance for individual players to move up and down. But there's also a lot of resources kind of coming back down the pyramid too, to make sure that, that, that the kind of grassroots, if you will, is able to develop and have a large membership base to sustain both the sports economic side, but also just the, the development of good players. The other, the other soccer related comparison that we made was what they might wind up doing with, the director of high performance, which now has a completely different title and is going to be more overseeing kind of everything right from high performance to grassroots. And if if you follow, if you don't follow USA soccer, you know, when they hired Jurgen Klinsmann, who's from Germany, he was one of the best players in German history. And he even managed uh, the German team at the world cup. They hired, they brought him in and he kind of insisted that he take over the whole system, right? From, from, from the youth leagues to, to player development all the way up and kind of put his own structure in place. It worked in, in my opinion, as someone who does kind of follow USA soccer in my, um, non-expert opinion, it worked except at the very top. They didn't win at the very top. They obviously, uh, as a lot of people are aware, failed to qualify for the World Cup in Russia. But I think what he put in place set the U.S. up for success in the future because I think that um, we're starting to develop, to develop younger players, and you saw the the younger teams start to perform well at the international stage, and hopefully someday that will that will lead to some some, some success for the the senior team at the World Cup level. But uh, in my opinion, Jurgen did a very good job at everything except winning at the senior level, and it, it sounds like that's kind of what this new role is going to be. Right, he's going to be over over the high performance overall but then also in charge of helping develop that pipeline of athlete, that grassroots pipeline, like he was talking about. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I think, I think it's, it sounded from Jeff that it's partly open to what the candidate's going to propose too. Mm-hmm. but it sounds to me like he's not just looking for someone to run, you know, four to six teams at the mm-hmm. very top end. It's how do you kind of integrate that in with everything else? Right. And so, you know, 
you got a little bit of that, to be honest, in, in British curling, where like when I was doing my level two coaching course, one of the things that was kind of flagged to me is I'd been taught the Canadian standard around a couple of things like grip and release and some of the, the instructions. And one of the things that was said to me is, well, at the time, Tony Zumak was the national coach. And so Tony had a certain set of philosophies around the delivery. And that had been cascaded down to people the next step down in Scottish curling. Uh, and, you know, a couple of like minor tweaks here and there. And then when I did the course, it was also cascaded down to me. And they said, part of what we want in our pyramid is that juniors coming up all have the same concepts and have a very similar style of delivery so that the ones who kind of rise up and do well uh, don't have to kind of have their delivery entirely torn apart, right? And that's that's different from when I was growing up that, you know, when I was growing up, you could probably tell what kind of a curler, what club someone started curling at based on kind of the quirks of their delivery. And there's mm-hmm. a few quirks in my delivery that I went back to Montreal West Curling Club where I first curled and my buddy Stu, who I played juniors with, and he had the same kind of, I'd say, technical fault that I had, <laughs> not, to, not to kind of, you know, talk trash about an old curling buddy. But we both had basically <laughs> been taught, we basically hadn't been taught a certain thing about how to square our shoulders that, you know, a better coach may have done back in juniors. But we both kind of actually slid in a very similar way because that's, that's how the person in the club taught us to throw the stone. And if you went to another club, they had a different kind of technical fault, right? Um, and so part of kind of standardizing your pyramid is that then, a, first of all, common technical faults are identified, but B, every person coming up is speaking the same technical language in terms of sweeping footwork, in terms of sweeping concepts, right? And that eventually you then have a, a more standardized way to, to, to throw the stone, which translates not just to the high performance end of things, but if someone at a curling club just wants to work with a local coach on improving their delivery... Mm-hmm they can also be taught the same concepts and get a fairly stable and sound way of throwing the stone. And I'll, I'll stop with the soccer analogy analogies and, and talk American football for a sec, but it sounds like, you know, I'm from Oklahoma. There are a couple of high school football programs in Oklahoma that win every year. Uh, and it's been, there were, there were a couple that kind of traded state championships in Oklahoma literally for 25 years, just two teams, one state. And it's because one, they're they're very loose with the uh, with the transfer rules in high school football in Oklahoma. But besides that, <laughs> um, these kids start playing together at a very young age, and they work up through this football program in their municipality where. They're learning the exact same offense and, pl- and same defense and playing together from the time that they're 12 all the way up until they get to high school or even before 12, like eight years old, they start learning basically the offense that they're going to run if they eventually play football in high school. So by the time they get to the high school program and to the high school football coach, he has, he can assume a level of knowledge when they get to high school. And that's really, that's why they win is they don't have to spend time teaching um, the little things like they can, they can get, they get to high school and there's an assumption there's, there's some assumed knowledge there and they can work on perfecting things that allow them to beat everyone that they play. Yeah. You know, there's a similar thing. There's a great ice hockey documentary called red army. Have you seen that? It was on Netflix a while ago. No, I haven't, but it's basically the history of Soviet hockey. And like it's catnip for me because like basically as a Canadian growing up in the 80s, right? The the really interesting thing was the the Canada Soviet Union ice mm-hmm. hockey rivalry. And it basically goes from the 50s right up through the, you know, 1990 and kind of the the first wave of, of Soviet players coming over to play in the NHL. And there was basically the exact same thing. There was this guy who was like a coach in the 60s who he wrote the book and he's like here's how here's the drills we do, here's how we do X, Y, and Z. And then the players would all play in five person units. And so like the, the most effective Soviet ice hockey line, the first line was basically a five person unit that had played together from like 15 to 30 or something. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, all same concepts, always done the, doing the same drills. I mean, some of the stuff you couldn't do in a democratic society, but uh, <laughs> you know, um, but, but basically because they played together, it's like we could play instinctively. And one of the things they said is like the Canadians, because they were just thrown together, they had no team cohesion, right? Whereas us, we'd all done the same thing and could all kind of work work, work very well together. So there's advantages in having a full 
national pyramid, right? Where the same concepts are being taught, the same, for lack of a better term, like I said before, language, right? Like the same terminology, but also I just mean like the same same kind of features in a delivery, same kind of philosophies in a delivery can really help a program build depth, right? That the USA Crawling, I think, has done really well over the last decade in terms of getting two or three teams of each gender to be consistently in the top top 25 in the world, right? And obviously winning a gold medal is a fantastic feat. But to take the next step, it's you need to build a farm system, if you will, right? That's like any, you know, any baseball team or any other pro sports team, they need to have some source for like the next generation of talent. And the only way you do that is if you build up some kind of pyramid structure, like what Jeff was talking about. How much pushback do you think that that uh, they will get? And really, how different is it? Because I remember like when I first started curling and I first started teaching learn to curls because, you know, we, we were at an arena club. We didn't have that many people, even though I hadn't been curling for very long. I was still brought in to, to help teach curling. And I was looking, I was trying to teach, you know, by the book uh, from what USA Curling sent out as far as you know, this is how you grip the stone. This is how you, this, this is how you hold your broom when you're sliding. This is the way you go through your process of, of delivery. So I was trying to teach the, the textbook delivery and, you know, you look around the ice and there's, there's people teaching all kinds of different things there to learn to curl, like how much, so how, how difficult is it going to be to kind of implement what you're talking about, Jonathan? I mean, I think, okay, so here, I mean, here's where the the difficulty comes just in terms of coaching, right? Is like across, well, everywhere in curling world, there's going to be people who've kind of basically become the coaches or the the delivery gurus at their clubs and rinks, right? And a lot of them know a lot about curling and a lot of them have slightly different ways of teaching the delivery, right? And it's it's really no different than a golf delivery, right? That you could go to, I can't remember, what were the name of the two swing coaches that Tiger Woods employed? Uh, I do not remember. Anyway, remember how he had like one delivery and it's supposed to be the best in the world and then he went off to a different guy and tore it all apart and did it, like rebuilt his delivery, right? And it's like, there's a similar thing in curling that there's, there's several people around the world that have very specific ways of teaching the delivery, you know? Some of them, you know, some of them I think are more sound than others, but it's like, it's like a baseball swing or a a golf swing where there's probably more than one way to skin that cat. And so there's probably multiple ways of doing it right. But if you're, if everyone at your club is learning it one way and then the national standard is another way, that's where you kind of end up having people kind of butting heads. So I think one tension might be that, that there, there obviously will be a lot of very knowledgeable and experienced coaches who've developed their own technique. And then they may say, well, I've been teaching it this way for 20 years, so I don't want to change. I don't want to learn this new system. And they may also just have philosophical disagreements. So that might be one side of contention. Um, I mean, I think the other big thing is like selection process and how people get funding. And, you know, um, I think some one phenomenon that's kind of common is Sometimes people overestimate where they are in the pyramid compared to where they actually are. And I can think of a few few cases of people in U.S. curling who, you know, felt aggrieved. But, you know, I think I think one of the things with the modern order of merit point system is it's like, well, go out on tour and collect points. Right? Like we, we talked to Team Seneca in the past and they're kind of saying, OK, we want to get into that program. What do we have to do? And they've kind of committed to doing the training and stuff to to get to a certain level. But um, I think one of the things is going to be like, how does that selection process for the kind of very top of the pyramid take place? And then what's done for the next tier down? Like what resources are available for the people who are competitive and want to get to that top rung and be in whatever the high performance teams call it, called to develop themselves, to kind of climb up the ladder. And that's everything from coaching to frankly, like when we talked to Jerry, like, you know, there's not that many... Uh, bond spiels in the US if you want to kind of collect points, right? You probably have to travel in Canada right now. So is there a way to kind of develop a, a, a deeper and richer tour system in the US that would let them, that would let people that have ambitions to eventually get on a high performance program, collect the points and get the experience and raise their game to a level where it's at least conceivable they could be, could be considered for the top tier. And then from a grassroots level, it does sound like he is committed to 
improving programs that are available at the at the club level for for bringing in new members. Yeah, and I think that that matters too. Both both bringing in new members, and I think that's kind of part of the the membership issue that we're going to look at next week. Is like what's what do we do to kind of convert people from learn to curl to to regular members, but also retention of members. And then I think like the the third place where I think clubs and competitive curling fall down is like like that that tier that's basically club plus, like someone who maybe plays one or two leagues a year and then maybe wants to do one or two bond spiels, maybe for fun, but not make a fool of themselves, if that makes sense, right? Like what do I do if I like curling? I'm not I don't have any ambition of going to the Olympics but I want to get a little bit better, right? And frankly, other sports are way better at this, right? Like if, if you and I were to go join a tennis club, right? We could, we could sign, there'd be a pro there and we could hire them and there'd be a little ladder system in the club. And then if we wanted to play a tournament in the area once or twice a year, there's like, there's actually a clear USTA ranking system where we could go and play in a tournament that's appropriate for our ability and have fun and not have to run into like uh you know, some elite player who destroy us and, you know, six nil, six nil. Right. And so I think that's the other place where like a little bit more, which would give people a reason to engage with the sport a bit more, but also recognizes that people with full-time jobs and other commitments can't go on the tour or don't want to go on the tour or don't even want to go play like five bond spiels a year, but just maybe how can I get that little bit better? So I enjoy it a bit more. So I stay around and remain engaged. Yeah, like a, a friend of mine that I used to work with, um, he was on a tennis team and they wound up playing in whatever nationals it was for their level, but they got to go down to Florida. They had they scrounged up some sponsorships to help pay for their trip down to Florida for their uniform and went down and, and played in nationals and did did well. They, they didn't win, but they did well enough that they were pretty proud of themselves. So yeah, you need more things like that in curling, I think. Yeah, and I think that, you know, lots of other sports, I think, do that a bit better, right? Whether it's like a local running club that kind of gets people out to do maybe one or two 10Ks a year, or whether it's, say, a softball club that kind of gets people to perhaps go and travel to a tournament once a year. Like, what's the, what are the ways in which clubs and the USCA and the regions together can link up and kind of provide something that's a bit more than simply once a week rec curling? and kind of meaningful and a worthwhile experience that's also not saying you've got to go out and, you know, hit the gym five times a week, mm-hmm. play 20 bond spiels, get, you know, $50,000 in sponsorship and, and play on tour. Yeah. And like for me, it's the arena nationals uh, here in the U.S. where all the arena clubs can that all the arena clubs are open to play in, uh, which I've gone and played in a couple times. Uh, and then now that I'm at a club that is in on the East Coast, we have the the GNCC Arena Championship, uh, as well as they're they're trying to to make this a, a bigger tournament. And I really like the idea of it, but it's the the Southern States Championship where it's not just arena clubs, but it is clubs basically Virginia and South getting together uh, and playing a a Southern States uh, Championship. That's now been run a couple times as well. Yeah, I think those things are fantastic, right? And growing up in Montreal back in the 90s, like there was a thing there called the Canadian branch of the Royal Caledonia Curling Club, which could basically trace itself back to the original Scottish curling organization. And there are these things called branch events, which were basically, okay, you're near the top of your club. And there was like five or six different varieties of events. Uh, You know, there'd be like a single team entry event that anyone could enter, um, there'd be like a special event for the teams that had won their club championships. So you have to enter as the club team. So if you won the A flight in your club, one of the prizes that went with it was you played the other A flight winners in a, in a weekend tournament. And then like, one of my favorite ones was, I can't remember what it was, I think it was the governor general's medal and it was like a double rank. So you'd go out with two teams, you and another team from your club and you'd play another club side by side and you'd, you'd basically play for... 10 ends simultaneously and it was cumulative points. So it, there are these competitions that added wrinkles. And there was another one where like, it was like a ro- rotating trophy, right? So these were like competitions that if you were a good club curl and want to take the next step, you could play in those. And that was basically what I'd play in uh, a fair bit of, right? We'd also enter play downs back then, but you know, we also knew what, once we run into the, ran into the Guy Hemmings of the worlds or the Mike Fournier's, it was, it was pretty much over. So we, we knew we weren't getting to the briar, 
but there was something else for someone who was like an ambitious curler who was kind of that next tier down. And so I think building up that ecosystem of competitions is probably the next thing. So the Southern States Championship sounds fantastic. I think the Arena Nats, well, I was involved in creating the Arena Nats. So I'm glad to see it still going. And I think I think we set up for precisely that purpose, right? That if you're in an arena club, there's no way you're going to, you know, you if you entered the, the playdowns, you'd get massacred like 20 to 1. That's no fun for either team, right? So what's something that's kind of appropriate for skill level and, and given the resources that you can get for a team playing in playing in an arena club, that's something that people can kind of aim for and make the centerpiece of their season. So supporting those events, building them up and kind of broadening out the number of ways and places people can play, I think is what then builds the the lowest tier of that pyramid, which you know is actually in a certain sense the most important because if you take that away, the whole structure collapses. Yeah, I also like what they're doing with Arena Nationals and and taking it to different places. It's been to South Bend, Indiana. It's been to uh, actually the, the I mean the best example is I played in Arena Nationals in Cedar Rapids and up until uh, Cedar Rapids was originally scheduled to host this year's uh regular USA Nationals. Um and obviously that'll be rescheduled. Um Hopefully they'll be going back to Cedar Rapids later um, at a later year. Um, but yeah, a, a, a place that originally hosted Arena Nationals was going to get to host the the main national championship. And then uh, last year's before it was canceled, was scheduled to go to Wyoming. And to, you know, to, to using that event to take curling to different places is a, is a good thing as well. Um, and then uh, finally, uh, one of the things that we hit on with Jeff that I'm excited about is this icebreakers program. Um, and I, I, I did like that. He said, you know, this is something that quite frankly, you have to focus on forever. You know, this isn't something that we're doing to just kind of kickstart diversity in, in curling. It's something that it, it sounds like he is committed to. And hopefully once the pandemic is over and we have more, more curling facilities open, I'm excited to see what this program looks like. Yeah, me, me too. And I think, I mean, on top of just kind of, it's the right thing to do. Uh, and we've certainly been talking about diversity a lot over the course of the last year on the podcast. Again, this it, it comes back to a recruitment issue, right? Like just the, just the simple demographics of the U.S. is a diverse society already, and it will in- become increasingly more and more diverse. And if curling just wants, it stays in this kind of talent, then the sport will die. Right. If you don't, if clubs don't expand to to make sure they're reaching out to broader communities where the rinks are based, um, and figure out a way to recruit the next generation from kind of all different backgrounds, and kind of incorporate them so they feel like they're they're included in the curling culture, um, that will just become a, a a threat to curling's long term survival. Curling loves to call itself an inclusive sport, and that's true but that's it really from what i've noticed it's curling is inclusive inclusive if you find curling and then even then it's only to a certain extent like the kind of things that i've heard and the kind of sideways glances i've gotten from saying yeah i'm a curler from oklahoma i can only imagine what it's like for someone who doesn't look like me i can only imagine what they go through if they go to a curling club we are inclusive if you come to our to our home turf what we aren't good at as a sport is going into areas where the people don't look like us and then trying to, to bring, bring the sport to them rather than sitting back and waiting for them to come to us. And that has to stop. And it sounds like that's what USA curling is trying to do with this program. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the kind of most important thing. And it, it doesn't always have to translate into uh, people becoming members. Like I, I'm, I really am a big believer that if, even if someone, you know, does the uh, rocks and rings program or tries street curling or just comes for one learn to curl session, has fun and goes off. Like they leave with a better knowledge of the sport. And if they've had a good experience, they share that with other people. And that in of itself is kind of a way to, to diversify the sport, both the audience, the people who are aware of it and all that too. But hopefully it also then eventually translates into um, more diverse curling clubs. All right, Jonathan, this was fun, and uh, we will continue this conversation next week, both with 
both with Jeff and with others, uh, as far as the, the new membership model that's being rolled out. So we kind of talked a little bit more, a little bit more on the high performance side this week, uh, next week when we, uh, when we discuss membership, it is going to be all grassroots. So I'm excited, excited for that show. Yeah, looking forward to that too. So that'll we'll really focus on that issue too. And I think that's important for, especially for USA kind of club level curlers to listen to. Because I think a lot of uh, myths we discovered were, were pretty quickly debunked. But also I think um, kind of anyone anywhere who wants to look at uh, broader issues around club retention and uh, recruitment. All right. Thanks everybody. And we will talk to you then. Thank you for listening to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. You can find all of our previous episodes and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast app, and leave a review. If you enjoyed listening, the greatest compliment we can receive is when you tell a friend about us. That helps us grow and helps us share our love of this great game. If you have a comment or question, or you just want to talk about curling, you can email us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at Curling Podcast. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Rocks Across the Pond. Thank you again, and we will talk to you real soon. Bye.